Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us here at B'nai For this broadcast, we thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week where we set apart the Sabbath, worship the Lord, and hear teachings from the Word of the Lord. Um, right now, it is June 21st, and we are uh, gearing up for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. And so we're very excited for all the amazing uh, things the Lord's going to do uh, with the young people that are coming this year. Um, if you would join with us in prayer uh, to pray that everyone arrives safely and uh, that the kids have an amazing spiritual experience, uh, that they would leave the camp changed for the better and uh, that we they would be very much blessed by this year's event. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we announced that I would be going on the road uh, with my family uh, here coming up in August. I'm happy to say that we can now give you an update on some of that information uh, where I'm going to be going on the road, going on a West tour. Um, one of the things that uh, we're doing with uh, some of the style and the of the tour is this, is that um, I'm go- heading out west, and so the phrase kind of uh, comes to mind, go west, young man. And uh, my many of us here in the Messianic movement grew up with uh, the Michael W. Smith album that came out in 1990. And the funny thing is, is that this tour that I'm going on, one of the main things that I'm going to be teaching on is the biblical definition of love. And on that album that many of us grew up with, there's a song called Love Crusade on there. And so that is what the uh, theme of this road trip that I'm going on is going to be about sharing the biblical definition of love, understanding the greatest commandment that it is for us to love the Lord our God and the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's going to be the main thrust of the message uh, when I go on that tour. Um, we have a couple of dates and locations to announce uh, for any of you that might be in this area. You guys can look forward uh, to me and my family joining, uh, coming to that area. On August 3rd, I'm going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico. On August 6th, I'm going to be in Phoenix, Arizona. August 19th is going to be in Lancaster, California, in the area of Los Angeles. And then August 16th through 17th, uh, I'm going to be in Salem, Oregon with my father, Monty Judo. We're going to have a mini conference up in Salem, Oregon. So if you happen to be in that area, look forward to a weekend, a full weekend of teaching there. And then August 23rd, I'm going to be in Vancouver, Washington, uh, just across the border from Oregon. More dates are going to be announced soon. Um, so if you would, you can keep up to date on the Lion and Lamb website at lionandlambministries.org. If you click on the uh, banner or the link that says on the road, um, we're going to keep that page up to date for any new locations, uh, locations and times 
uh, actual uh, addresses where those meetings are going to take place. And so I hope to uh, see many of you that might watch this broadcast, see you on the road, and I hope and pray that I can pour out a blessing upon you and meet you locally, shake your hand, and uh, be a blessing to you. So very excited about that coming up here in August. And so we're just praying that the Lord would uh, open up more dates and make an opportunity to minister uh, to you that are there on the road. Once again, thank you for joining us for this broadcast. Uh, if you're blessed by this broadcast each and every week, um, we ask that you prayerfully consider making a donation this week. You can do that at llgive.com. And uh, we hope and pray that everything that we do here at this ministry is edifying to you, the brethren uh, who are watching around the globe. So we pray that this is a wonderful blessing to you. Now, let us uh, start the Sabbath off right with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. 
Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach, Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Micha mocha, nedahar bachudesh, nohora techilot, ose fele, ose Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, l'adrotam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael, o-thi le-olam, k'sheshet yamim asadunai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi Shabbat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod. 
malchuto leolam vayed. Yeshua Hamashiach Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha hayom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avenecha v'depardabam b'shivtecha b'yetecha uv'lechtecha v'derech u'shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ota yadecha v'heyu latotavot b'inenecha u'chetavtam ha'mazuzah b'techa uv'sharecha All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name, for you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was and is and is to come. Keep me to your Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, to chapter 8. Hold your finger there, and as you open the scripture, I will do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bachabanu Mekol Ha'amim Venatan Lanu Et Torah To Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is uh, one of the hardest to pronounce. Uh, it is called Baha Alotcha, and it comes from uh, verse 2 of chapter 8 of the book of Numbers. Uh, this Torah portion incorporates five chapters, uh, extending all the way through chapter 12 of the book of Numbers. And so there is so many things that are in this Torah portion, lots of things and different topics that we can talk about. Some of them are more related to each other than others, and so with every uh, Torah portion, there always seems to be some sort of theme that is going on in the course of the Torah portion. In fact, sometimes certain other Torah portions seem to be similar in nature as well. And let me first say this, the title of our Torah portion, Baha Alotcha, comes from verse 2 where it says this, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps... The seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. That phrase, when you arrange or when you set up the lamps. This is a bit of instruction that's given to Aaron when he goes to set up the menorah that is in the holy place. Now, we've talked about the menorah before. We received all the instruction for the creation and the building of it back in Exodus, that it was of hammered work, it was of solid gold, it uh, sat to the south of, within the sanctuary, across from the uh, table of showbread, and it was in the holy place, in the same place as the golden altar of incense, and it was all before the veil, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. So here we have this, what basically seems to be a housekeeping announcement given to Aaron that when you set up the lights and the lamps, you're to arrange them in a certain way. Now, there's lots of things that we can talk about here. Let me first talk about the theme here. When you set up. Baha Aloha. In the middle of that is the, is the Hebrew word Ola, which you might remember was the type of offering, the burnt offering that was given before the Lord, the morning and the evening lamb that was commanded to us back early in uh, the book of Leviticus. 
The Ola offering that is lifted up, that is burned in the fire, raises up and ascends before the Lord. There's a similarity to that in the theme of what we're talking about here. About something being raised up, something being lifted up. That when the, Also, the, this menorah, many people, scholars believe that this menorah was tall enough that the priest sometimes would have to ascend to take care of the lamps. It wasn't short to, uh, to where he could do it uh, just standing flat-footed. He had to actually go up either a set of steps or a set of stairs and ascend to tend to the lamps, to tend to the wicks that were on the top of the golden lampstand, the menorah. And so there's this idea that the priest had to ascend to take care of the light that inhabited the sanctuary. There's many parallels that are uncanny to discuss the uh, role of the Messiah, where it's said of him, he is the light of the world. He is the one who ascended, who ascends and descends, and he has ascended to uh, to heaven. And that there's a, a parallel here to the menorah in that way. The lampstand is also likened unto the spirits of God, where it says uh, there in Isaiah 11, starting at verse 1, talking about the stem, the root that will form from Jesse, who was the father of King David, and that this was a prophecy about the Messiah, that from that lineage, the Messiah will be risen, will raise up, and what will be thrust upon him will be the spirit of the Lord. And things like the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and the fear of the Lord. And that that's the teaching on the seven spirits of God that very much connects to the lampstand. And so there's a spiritual nature to all of this when we're talking about the lampstand. In the case of the physical arrangement of these lamps. We have to, we do have to kind of sometimes adjust our ideas and our thought processes. In modern day, if you have a menorah, we'll stick some wax uh, candles in there and we'll light some candles and that will be how we light a menorah in modern times. But in ancient times, this wasn't, these were oil lamps. Oil lamps, seven of them that were arranged on top of the seven branches of the menorah. These lamps actually had more of the appearance, if you know visually what I'm talking about, is that it appear, had the appearance of like an Aladdin lamp. Like an old, an Arabic lamp that looks like it might have had a, a larger bowl or basin and then had a little spout. And what it is is the oil would sit down in the bottom in the large basin and then a wick would run from the spout down into the basin and then you would light the, the wick on the end of the lamp. And it had enough space for the oil to be filled. So it actually had sort of a shape and a direction to where the light would go. And it says here, the instruction to Aaron is that the light was to be before for the lampstand was to be in front of the lampstand so that basically when the when the lamps were were adjusted or faced they would shine their light forward of the lamp now you could think about you, you you could think about this that in the sanctuary that's where the light needed to be more centrally located in the middle of the room and the light would be shown forward of the menorah and in front of the menorah but spiritually, we know there's a connection to this where it's about having our face turned toward the Lord, having our face always looking toward and forward that the Lord is the one who leads us and guides us and the light goes before us. In fact, we're going to continue that theme uh, later on in our Torah portion, talking about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel. And that we have to remember the spirit of the Lord leading us and guiding us in everything that we do. 
So I also liken it unto this. Again, like I said, it seems like this seems like a housekeeping announcement, so to speak. Hey, Aaron, you know, when you go up and you step up onto the menorah and, and attend to it, make sure they're sort of all facing the right direction kind of thing. This is the same kind of thing we do even in our own house when you might walk by your mantle or a shelf or a picture hanging on the wall. And if you ever see that it's kind of a little off to the side or something, you might walk over and you might adjust a picture on your wall or you might rearrange something a little bit or straighten something on the mantle if if you happen to walk by. This is the same kind of thing and arrangement that we sort of have to remember to do in our spiritual lives. As I describe it as a housekeeping announcement, you know, we can talk about it, you know, that we're just kind of tending to it a little bit. But no, when we're talking about our spiritual house, there's always something we have to remember to tend to, to take care of, to perpetually nourish and to maintain the tabernacle and the temple that has been established inside our hearts, inside our personal spiritual lives. We have to remember to do these things. We need to make sure the light is facing the right way. Some people might think, man, this just seems this is so insignificant. Why in the world would this be something we need to we, we need to worry about or need to think about? Or why is this even recorded for us here in the scripture? Well, there's no idle word in scripture. There's a spiritual principle here all the way down to even the finest details of our lives. We need to arrange our spiritual houses in a way that continues to be what the Lord wants it to be. He is the master of the house. He is the one who sets those things up. The the owner of the house is the only one that can walk by and adjust something on the mantle to make it his house. It's a, that that that's exactly what you do is when you walk by and you 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 adjust something, that's it's almost a sign that that only the master can do that work. Only the master can decide whether that's in the right place or not. And that's continually something we have to remember is that he is the master of our lives and the master of this house. We have to constantly submit ourselves to him, to his will, his instruction, not just what we think it should be. And that is what the Lord is doing, even in the most simplest of explanation as to how to arrange the lamps on the lampstand. Now, the rest of chapter 8 goes into, again, setting apart the cleansing and the dedication of the Levites as the priests to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. This goes and reiterates the instruction, especially if you go all the way down to verse uh, 16, where it says this in chapter 8. For they, the, the priesthood, are wholly given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting. To make atonement for the children of Israel. That there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near to the sanctuary. This is where we have this reiteration and it's spoken very clearly here. And this makes me believe something that that it's not a it's not a well-known fact. It's not explicitly stated by a lot of teachers, but but I'm just giving my opinion here. I believe 
that the priesthood actually was the secondary plan and a substitution for what God originally wanted to do. God originally called for all of the children of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. It was the firstborn of every house that was going to be the one that was going to serve in the, ta- the house of the Lord to represent their family and to represent all the people. But the children of Israel were too spiritually immature to fulfill that role, to fulfill that task. They were appropriately named the children of Israel because they had a lot to learn. And the sages and rabbis say that it was because of the sin of the golden calf It is the reason for this complete substitution. It says there that it's like, look, this was the firstborn. These were the children of Israel. The firstborn was going to be my servants. When I smote all the firstborn in Egypt, when you guys came out of the wilderness, they were mine. They were going to be the ones who were going to serve. But now we've come to a point now where the instruction has been now to all the priests and all the sons of Levi to be the ones in the service of the tabernacle. All the instruction back in Exodus about the establishment of the priesthood all had to do with Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons were always going to be the leaders of the priesthood. They were the ones who were ordained. They were going to do this. But then obviously there was going to be a great number of other people that were going to come and help to serve in that way. way. But the children of Israel sinned. They lost that connection. They separated themselves, defiled themselves from God. And so God had to create a substitution, a substitutionary system so that somebody who then was held to a higher standard could perform and do the works of the tabernacle. This is this substitutionary system gives us the precedent for which the Messiah is going to stand in the gap for us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many of us have done many terrible things that have defiled ourselves to keep us from the presence of God and worshiping him. But God has established a way and an acceptance of a substitute. Rather than him just writing you off and saying, you're, uh, you're, you're, you've sinned, you've defiled yourself, I have nothing to do with you, and I'm going to go find another kingdom, and I'm going to go be worshipped by another group of people. No. He will still be worshipped by you who've defiled yourself. However, he now accepts a substitute in your place. It creates a, a protection between us and God. Even though we've sinned, there is an acceptance of a substitute. This is the precedent for the Messiah to be our intercessor between us and God. And it's the same way with when we give a sacrifice as a payment to the Lord for something that we did or some sin that we committed. And the priesthood itself was a substitute for the children of Israel who had sinned and defiled themselves. The rest of chapter 8 goes into and gives additional instructions for the Levites. It says, interestingly, in verse 24, that it talks about that to all the Levites from 25 years and above, one may enter to perform the service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Well, that's very interesting because whenever we numbered the Levites earlier on in the book of Numbers, we numbered them from the age of 30 to 50 who would do the work of the tabernacle. But it says here, anyone who's 25 years or old may enter the service of the tabernacle. Now, the rabbis are unanimous in this way, is that this five-year period in the age of a priest from the age of 25 to 30 was a training period. 
It was a time in which they were to prepare to do all the work of the tabernacle. And they were given that opportunity at 25 years old. For five years, it was like an apprenticeship. Because when it came to the work of the priesthood, it was very important. They had to maintain a level of holiness and protect the sanctuary from all different manner of things. All the defilement of the children of Israel. They themselves had to be hold, held to a higher standard. They had to wash their hands, their feet before doing the service. They had to arrange the lamps in just a certain way. So there was a lot of work to be done that was very detailed. We need to have a training program so that when somebody came in to do that task, it was always done rightly and appropriately. So they began this training at 25 years old. This is the time. This was the apprenticeship. This was the internship for one to become priests. Now, obviously, there, there was probably some, some stipulations for those men. There were certain jobs that they, that 25 year olds were not allowed to do. But they got to walk around. They were able to learn how to do this work. So when it came time to do the service of the tabernacle, we had men who knew what they were doing. This is very important for us to know. And I'll even mention that a little bit later as well. Going into chapter 9, we now have the stipulation and the instruction for the Passover. And the a way for someone to keep the Passover on a second day. Once again, there's another stipulation there's another uh, substitution that is acceptable before the lord it starts by talking about how the children of israel were ready to keep the passover at the appointed time on the 14th day of the first month and they were going to keep it and keep the passover there in the wilderness of sinai at verse 6 it says however there was there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. When you're talking about defilement, you're going to come into contact with something unclean. You could no longer partake in the Passover in the way that you could before. This is not a sin. This was just a manner of uncleanness. If, 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 you're, if, you're, uh, if a family member had a heart attack and died in your arms and you became in contact with a dead body, that was obviously not a sin upon you, but it was a manner of defilement and becoming unclean. And I'm sure, sure these men who came before, you see their heart where it's like, look, they earnestly desire to worship the Lord with the Pesach sacrifice. But they've become defiled and they want to maintain the boundaries and the instructions that God has given to them. So what do we do? Interestingly enough, Moses goes before the Lord when they when they go to, to present this. He says, uh, stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you in verse eight. And the Lord speaks to Moses and he says this. If you become defiled, if any of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover on the 14th day of the second month. This is the only appointed time where any sort of guidelines is given. If you can't participate in it at the appointed time, there is a guideline for it to be done a, a, a month later. What that does also is it, it teaches me, it tells me there's something very important about Passover that actually stands out uh, perhaps from the other appointed times. The feast of redemption, the feast of freedom, the feast, the, the first feast of the year that is basically sets the stage for all the other appointed times that you will keep for that year. 
It begins at the harvest. It begins, it, it sets you apart. It's when the covenant was formed with the children of Israel, even going back to Egypt. This was before Mount Sinai. This was before the Ten Commandments. This was before God speaking to all the congregation of Israel so everyone could hear. This festival and this sacrifice is extremely important. It is almost the foundation or, or it's the thing that begins one's uh, faith and covenant relationship with the Most High God. There's something very important about Passover. So the fact that we have a guideline to keep it on, a, on the second month, if you were unable to on the first month, tells me Passover is very important. It's something that should not be taken lightly whatsoever. It also says this when it talks about on a faraway journey. Now, the rabbis say that there was a certain area of land that if you were far enough away on a journey and far enough away from Jerusalem, and, and this was something, again, outside of your control. This wasn't a vacation that you get to choose to go on vacation at the time. And you can say, oh, uh, well, I'm, I'm on a faraway journey on the 14th of the first month, so I'm just going to go ahead and keep it on the second month. No, that, that's not what the purpose of this commandment was. It was for a reason that was outside of your control that you were on this journey, on this faraway journey. Now, I think about it spiritually as well, that many of us, especially scattered into the nations, exiled into the nations, all of us are in some kind of faraway journey that is we're away from Jerusalem. We have no temple. We have no sacrifice or ability to keep this sacrifice. Does that mean that we shouldn't keep the Passover? Of course not. In fact, if, if I was, if, if I'm kind of reading between the lines here, um, no, you're still going to keep the Passover because even somebody who was unable to keep it on the first month, they were supposed to keep it on the second. They were supposed to keep it, even if they're on a faraway journey outside of their control. Well, us scattered in the nations and in exile, we are in a spiritual faraway journey, so to speak. And how we got here were, was because of some stipulations that were outside of our control. That doesn't mean that we ever are going to give the excuse or the reason, well, because we're not able to go to Jerusalem and we're on this far spiritual faraway journey, we don't have to keep the Passover. Not at all. We are still to keep these commandments with all of our hearts, with all of our soul. We're to follow him earnestly. And it's this it's these instructions and these appointed times that confirm our covenant with God. In the same way that your anniversary with your spouse every single year comes around, that confirms your covenant with your spouse. You remember it. You set apart that time to celebrate that, to remember that covenant. And we're supposed to do the same with the appointed times of God. In verse 14 of chapter 9, it says this, And if a stranger dwells among you and would keep the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and the native of the land. There is not a different type of way to do Passover for a stranger and a different one for the native born. No, it's all to be one ordinance for all people. But if a stranger is going to come in and is going to partake of the Passover, they have to do so with all the same uh, rites and ceremonies and ordinances and customs having to do with the Passover. This would, of course, include circumcision. And now I said uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this, we were talking about keeping to the Passover. And as we're scattered in the nations in the diaspora, none of us can truly keep the Passover as it's commanded. And so we're talking about the idea of 
if people are physically circumcised, can they participate in the Passover? Or if they're not physically circumcised, I should say, uh, we question whether they can. And in the case of us scattered into the nations, the commandment of circumcision very much specifically had to do with the land of Israel. The children of Israel born in the wilderness weren't circumcised until they entered into the land in the first part of the book of Joshua. So the idea of physical circumcision had to do with keeping this commandment and this Passover sacrifice in the land. As we are scattered into the nations, we are then, there are their own sort of customs and traditions and ways of keeping the Passover. And so when we have that, we still should join in with anyone who, who would sojourn with us, whether they're native born, whether they're the same heritage as us. If they are in the same covenant, spiritual covenant that we have with the Most High God, then they have the same, they're equal heirs, co-heirs with us to the inheritance of the kingdom. And we should use the Passover and the practice that we do in the diaspora and scattered into the nations to draw everyone in and teach them about the covenant with God. When we are in the kingdom and in the land, what a sweet and glorious day that will be when all will be absolutely affirmed in the covenant with God and when we can partake of the Pesach sacrifice in the way it was originally ordained to be. But for now, as we're scattered into the nations, we have to do what we can, our level best, to keep the commandments with all of our hearts and with all of our souls. And we're praying and looking toward our spiritual inheritance, not a physical inheritance such as the land of Israel is for us. Now, as we finish out the rest of chapter 9, we talk about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Um, what, one of the things that's very interesting uh, that starts to show up, this theme that shows up here in our Torah portion, is the number 2. The number 2 is very prevalent in our Torah portion here. I just got done talking about the second Passover that will happen on the second month. We now are talking about and reiterating the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It had two forms to it. Now, one of the things I've always thought was fascinating about this pillar was that this thing showed up in the, in the camp. And every time the children of Israel ever grumbled against the Lord, grumbled against Moses, complained about this, that, or the other thing, and we're going to cover some of those going in later in the book of Numbers. The thing visually, I just remember, I mean, they would step out of their tent every morning. And they would look over toward the tabernacle, and there would be this supernatural cloud hovering over the tabernacle every single morning. And as the sun started to go down, this cloud turned into a pillar of fire that lit all of the camp. There was, it was like there was light in the camp of Israel. Even in ancient times, there's no electricity, there's no street lights, there's no, there might be a little bit of campfire light here and some lamps and some wicks and some things like that that would, would be light within the camp. But there'd be this pillar of fire in here, out there in the camp. To, to, I mean, it would have been uh, similar to as if there's daylight in the evening times in the camp of Israel. This was the presence of God in the camp. For anybody to stand up and say at any point in time, they're questioning whether God is with them, that this, this pillar is the sign of God's presence, the sign of God's faithfulness. It goes to show truly how spiritually immature and how wicked that generation was. It goes to show that they, I mean, you're, uh, I mean, there's manna, there's bread that falls from heaven every morning on the ground that they go and they pick up every single day, six days a week. 
there's a pillar sitting over there. They, they heard the voice of God. They did all of these things. Yet they still grumbled. They still rejected God. They still wanted to go back to Egypt. That it's just proof when you sit there and we know we're sitting at the cheat sheet and just say, well, if I had I been there, there's no way I would have done this. Well, perhaps there were some good people there. There was Joshua and there was Caleb and there were some people with a heart to follow the Lord, but they were few and far between. It goes to show how wicked that generation was. I also love the, the parallel with the idea that the, the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, that it, it, the two representations. I said back in the teaching about Abraham and the covenant made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, that what walked between the pieces in the covenant of the pieces where, where Abraham cut the animals in half and then he went and there was a, he fell into a deep sleep. And what walked through the pieces in the forming of that covenant was a, a smoking, burning furnace and something of a burning torch. It was two, both things were the presence of God making covenant with Abraham at that time. And here we have this pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, and that it's almost like the, the fire, this is again just a, a opinion, random uh, thoughts of a young man here. Um, the pillar of fire, if that was the representation of Yeshua, the Messiah, and the pillar of cloud was the representation of God the Father, who was there on Mount Sinai and appeared as, what, a smoking furnace, that how does that kind of coincide with the night and with the day? Almost as if in the day we are, we, we are, we are led, we are awake, we were made alive and awakened by, by God the Father when we were created. But then in the evening time, this is when the offerings was offered up before the Lord, and this is where um, as you sleep at night, the atonement of the Lord is there to protect you. That's why there was an evening lamb that was put on the, on the altar every single day. And so that the fire of the Messiah watches over us, brings us our atonement, for he's our redeemer. And that that covers us even when we're unconscious and even when we're not conscious of our own actions. I like to I liken it unto the way that God works in our lives, that we follow the words of God, the instructions when we're awake and when we're conscious we follow his words and his commands. But when we're unconscious, this is the amazing blessing that Yeshua, our Messiah, is for us. That he protects us and watches for over us, even in the times that we do things that we don't realize. When we sin subconsciously, when we sin and it was an accident, we didn't mean to do it. That's when the Messiah comes and fulfills his role in our lives. So that's just a random thought in, in, in my heart about the role of the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. It also gives us the instruction, of course, that this is now uh, more housekeeping announcements, if you will, of how the camp actually packed up and moved. We talked about earlier in the book of Numbers that the children of Israel, uh, the Levites would pack up the tabernacle. They would pack up the boards and the, and the, and the curtains and all the, the furniture and the different sons of Levi and the families of Levi had different roles and tasks. But now we have the instruction of what they, the children of Israel were to do when the, when the cloud lifted up and was taken out, that the children of Israel were to gather themselves up and they would go on a journey at the command of the Lord. And they would, and when the, when, when it would settle down, they would camp and they would rest. And when it would then get up and go, they were to get up and go and follow the, the leading of the pillar. 
Chapter 10 begins with a very interesting instruction that, that coincides with this, with the way that the children of Israel would pick themselves up and gather and organize themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they made two silver trumpets. Two silver trumpets that were of hammered work made of silver and that they would use these trumpets to call the children of Israel. Let me go ahead and read the first couple of verses here and you'll start to see the instruction and all of this makes perfect sense as far as how to organize the camp of Israel. Verse 2. Make two silver trumpets for yourselves. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall uh, shall then begin their journey. And when you sound the advance the second time, the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppress you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets. And you will be remembered by the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also, in the day of your gladness and your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. This thing about the silver trumpets is actually pretty important. I think I don't know if they get enough credit, the idea of these two silver trumpets and the way that they were used to to move the children of Israel, to to cause them to act upon it. It was almost like an act of prophecy that when these trumpets were blown, it was a call to action. This was also in distinction and, and, and in comparison to the blowing of the ram's horn. Because sometimes there was a call for the blowing of the ram's horn, such as in the story of Jericho. And that the call of the ram's horn was almost a call to invoke the power of God. It's the day of trumpets, and we believe that the sound of a ram's horn is what will be sounded for the resurrection of the dead. That is, for the action of God to invoke his power. Such as also when they called for the walls of Jericho to come down and they sounded a ram's horn and it was the power of God that shook those walls and took them down. The trumpets were to call us, were to get our attention, us, the people of God, the children of Israel, and cause us to act. They were called when everybody was to gather or to assemble. Or when just the leaders were to assemble. Or to sound the advance that we're moving the camp out. And that we'd blow the advance a certain way to tell everybody on the east side, the leaders, the, the, the tribes of Judah, uh, uh, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were the ones that led the advance. And then they'd blow the advance again when basically then calling everybody to come and follow. And all the last, the, the camps that followed behind, then for them to go. So there was a type of call that was for an advance. There was also a call that was for the sign of war. You were to sound an alarm in a certain way. And so there were certain blasts of these trumpets that would give certain instruction to the children of Israel for various things. 
Once again, the number two is prevalent again. We have two silver trumpets. I liken it to the first instruction there talking about the calling of the, the, if you blew one trumpet, you would call all the leaders to the, to, to the tent of meeting. And Moses would give his instruction. Then the leaders would go out and they would disperse the word amongst the people. If both trumpets were called, if two trumpets called, then all the congregation of Israel was gathered together to hear. I liken unto those two specific instructions as to the comings of Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, was a call. He, he came to this earth. He himself was pressed and crushed and of hammered work like these trumpets. He was our redemption, which the silver represents redemption spiritually in the scripture. And that his first coming called the disciples and the apostles to send the word into the nations to draw everyone back. That's what the purpose of his first coming was. Was to make them into fishers of men, sending them into the diaspora, into the scattered of the nations. And to give that word and that instruction of what his word is. A call to repentance. A call to turn their hearts back to the commandments of God. Following him alone. That's what the first coming was about. It's in the second coming that another trumpet will be called. He will return. And that calling of the second calling is when all of the people, all the congregation of Israel will be regathered in Israel, in Jerusalem, to hear the word of the Lord in the hearing of every person, every man, woman, and child who would hear the word of the Lord. That is going to be the fulfillment of the second coming. In the same way that the two trumpets were blown in two different ways for the calling of the children of Israel, such is the same spiritually for the coming of the Messiah. It's very important that we got what these calls meant, what each trumpet sound heard. We had to have some instruction here. I also read there uh, there in verse 8, it says this, Aaron and the priests, they were the ones to blow the trumpets. There was a very specific way the trumpets were to be blown. We need to make sure that when we're blowing and sounding the alarm for us to pack up and move, that that's not the same call as the call to war. Very dangerous situation, be a very different sort of things where it's like if you blow the trumpet and you hear and it's the sound of the call of war, then you're rushing to go get your sword, to gird your loins, to go and fight when the call was originally intended for us to pack up and to go. These calls had to be very important. You could trust that the one blowing the trumpet was somebody who knew what they were doing. Perhaps it was a priest that had been practicing for five years knowing what the call sounded like, what they're supposed to sound like, which call is for us to pack up into journey, which call is the alarm to war, which call sounds that is for all the leaders to come, and what the two trumpets in unison sound like when we're supposed to call the whole congregation of Israel. We needed to get this clear, needed to get this down. It's the same thing for us when we hear any call of the Lord. Do we know what the calls are? Are we familiar with this? Are we learning what those calls should be? 1 Corinthians 14.8 says, If a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? We need to be very careful when leaders within ministry 
and I'm speaking, of course, to myself and, and, and those that I work with closely, we need to make sure that when we sound an alarm for the people to hear, we're sounding the right one. That we are actually the ones who are called and ordained to sound the alarm because you need to be very careful that there's not people sounding an alarm who aren't the people who should be sounding the alarm, yet when the people hear what they have to say, they are alarmed. We need to be very careful of that because there's a great number of people and leaders out there in the world today who have called sounds of warning and called certain things to to be. And if people are becoming alarmed, but there's not a sound of war, if the alarm that's going out is supposed to be instructing people that they are to pack up, get their house in order, get themselves together, because we're going on a journey to follow the Lord, rather than an alarm for people to grab their sword, gird up their loins, and go and then attack the next thing that moves. See the problem here? Is if we're giving certain instruction as leaders in ministry, if we're giving certain instructions to all the people of Israel, and if we're giving them the wrong signal, then you have people who are hearing the word, grabbing their sword, ready to fight, and you have other people that heard the alarm and the call, and they interpreted that it's, no, we're supposed to go on a journey. We're supposed to be at peace. We're, have to, we're supposed to follow the Lord. No, we have to fight. No, we're supposed to follow the Lord. Do you see the conflict that can be formed in the congregation of Israel? We must be careful whenever anyone sounds the alarm. It must be done by somebody who is committed to following God. It must be done by somebody who is called by God, as he has called the Levites to be the ones, to be these intercessors, to have all of this instruction. Those are the people who are qualified to sound the alarm. It's a great spiritual lesson for all of us, that when we hear the call of the Lord, sometimes somebody, our fellow brother, might interpret something a little bit different. That might come if there is an uncertain call coming that we don't know. Is it from the Lord? Is this what it's supposed to be? Are we supposed to go to war? Are we supposed to journey? Are we supposed to gather? Are we supposed to gather the leaders? We don't know. We must, we need to clarify some of these things. We need to, to, to become, come in unison with one another and come to an understanding of when God speaks, we have to interpret what that is. And we have to make sure that that word is coming from the Lord. That comes with accountability. That comes with uh, leaders working hand in hand with one another, being in unison with one another in the same way everyone had to fall in line with the leadership of Moses, with the leadership of Aaron, and all the leaders in the congregation of Israel. Chapter 10 continues on and says, When the children of Israel actually finally left Mount Sinai, we've been here for a very long time, at the base of Mount Sinai, hearing all the words and the instructions and everything that is going on. And it says here, here's the number two for you again. Verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of testimony. Now, why is it? Why is that date specific or why is that the case? Well, obviously, the number two is prevalent. It also coincides with that instruction about the second Passover. If there were anybody who had who needed to keep the Passover on the second month at the 14th, 
It was then that they stayed at Mount Sinai. And so one of the last things anyone did at Mount Sinai was anybody who needed, who were defiled in the first month to keep the Passover, they kept the Passover and then they journeyed. Ample time was given for them to complete the Pesach sacrifice before the first time that pillar lifted up off the tabernacle and started moving and journeying. It gives us the instruction exactly how the children of Israel uh, traveled by and, and, and starts giving the lists of the, the tribes, who were the leaders, who was leading them. And there was this was an organized group and company of people that now were ready to follow the leading of the Lord. All the instructions about Sinai has all come to this. We are now going to the promised land. It is time to go. Going ahead to verse 35 and 36 of Numbers chapter 10. One of the most powerful scriptures in all. The sages say this, and when you, when you hear it, there are, the words here will penetrate you deep inside your soul when these words were spoken and uttered. Verse 35, so it was when the ark set out, Moses said... Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from before you. Verse 36. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many and the myriad of the thousands of Israel. This is the blessing that is done in a formal Torah service. This is the blessing that is done for the opening and the closing of the Ark of the Torah scroll. The uh, ver- the uh, Cantation, the Bahiban Silharon, is the is in Hebrew, verse thirty-five of Numbers. When the ark set out, Moses said, "Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered." But this this is the way that when when God moves, people, the enemies of God, flee from before Him. They scatter when they go, and us as the children of Israel followed that command. This idea of raising up, certainly the idea of ascension, and certainly the idea and the concept of the first coming of the Lord should call to mind. And then, when it said, when it rested, the second half is, return, O Lord, to the myriad of Israel, to the multitude of Israel, a number that is so big no man can count, and that's what we're looking forward to at the end of the age, for the Lord to return to Israel for, to, to, on all the number and the saints, the tribulation saints is a number that no man can number. And we can see the power of God's return. This passage, the, the sages say that there is wisdom to be found in these two verses that is equal to any of the other books of the Torah. They, they like it in two that, that there is so much power in these two verses. There's a great deal of commentary about it as well. It's also, this is the, the two verses that are famously bookended by the inverted noons. The Hebrew letter noon looks in the, in the block Hebrew appears to be like a bracket. And so this uh, letter can be inverted to basically create a bracket and set apart another uh, a passage or a verse and it's it's almost where you get the punctuation of brackets setting apart when uh here the sages have faithfully copied this idea of these inverted nooms um if you go to even a modern computer font of hebrew there is a glyph and a code you can uh, you can type in to actually generate an inverted noon it's an actual character according to the hebrew uh hebrew language and hebrew fonts It means it has a lot of people think, well, okay, it's just a bracket to set apart, you know, one verse. One one thing you have to ask is, well, why is that verse set apart so much? Another thing you can look into is 
the meaning of the Hebrew letter noon. The Hebrew letter noon means life. The quickening of life. It, the word picture of it is that of a fish. That basically, that is, you would, if you're looking across water and you saw a fish suddenly dart away, you would see life. The quickening of life. So what does that mean when it's inverted? Well, you might think, well, that's the opposite. So it's not life, then it's death. Well, yeah, the, you could think of it that way, except it's still a noon. It still represents life. So then what does it mean? Spiritually, sages of Israel say this. I've heard it many times over. The inverted noon represents the quickening of life from death. It represents resurrection. We're talking about the resurrection of the dead and we're talking about the coming of the Lord of course the resurrection comes at the end of the age and it will be the Messiah that resurrects when he came the first time he was resurrected when he comes the second time he will gather and there will be the resurrection of all of the saints and all those that have come before at the end of the age two different resurrections so the fact that we have two inverted noons in a Torah portion that already has a bunch of twos in it, I'm sure the Lord knows exactly what he's doing, and there's a spiritual connection going on here. I also want to point out Psalm 107, uh, starting at verse 23. In that passage, if you go into the Hebrew, there are seven more inverted noons in that passage of Psalm 107. My time is running short, so I don't have the time to go into that for this week. Uh, however, we'll cover that at another time. But you can also do your own research into that, that there's a very fascinating parallel to God uh, raising up those that are in distress that come from Psalm 107, once again, beginning at verse 23. So you can check that out. I encourage you to take a look at that in your own studies for this week. Chapter 11 of the book of Numbers uh, now goes to the time as the children of Israel are journeying on the wilderness where we finally got up. We're finally moving. What is the first thing that happens along the way? Uh, chapter 11. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Taborah means burning. This wasn't even a camping place along the journey. Taborah is not even mentioned in Numbers chapter 33 when we cover all the uh, camping places of the children of Israel going through the journey. Taborah was along the way. This was like the gas station they stopped at. This wasn't even a place where they were going. And so along the way, the children of Israel complained. I love when that very first line that says, when the people complained. And it's like almost as if this was completely expected. It's all like, look, this was going to happen. We knew this was going to happen. The people are going to complain. Children of Israel, remember that. It's the same thing for a family road trip. You're on your way. What's it happen? You get a couple of uh, miles down the road, and the kids start fighting. The kids start complaining. They start saying, are we there yet? And then if they do that enough, they frustrate mom and dad enough. They turn back, and you're like, do I need to pull this car over? And this is kind of just the natural, <laughs> natural human condition that is on display here. That we see within our own families in minivans, we saw clearly of the children of Israel journeying in the wilderness as well. Why did, the, why did this happen on the outskirts of the camp? Those were the people, this is the low-hanging fruit for complainers to, um, to kind of form. 
people on the outskirts, people that are kind of, they're kind of in with the camp, but they're also kind of out. They're kind of a non-committed, you know, as they're journeying on, you know, they, they, they're far away from everything going on. You got the Ark of the Covenant that's moving on ahead. You got the big tribe of Judah that's leading the way. You got all these carts and all these things of the Levites that are moving. And it's those that are on the outskirts of the camp that sometimes don't feel like they're a part of the camp. But sometimes that's their own doing. Why would somebody be on the outside of the camp? Why would anybody really be out there? Well, maybe if they didn't care about being close to the presence of God. Whenever the camp would set up, and in the midst of the camp, the tabernacle would be there. If the tabernacle was going to be there in the center of the camp, and if you truly wanted to be close to God, wouldn't you have been petitioning to be closer to the center of the camp? Of course you would, because you desire to be in the presence of God. You want to worship Him. You want to be in covenant with Him. If you found yourself always camping, you're like, all right, I, I, I guess I'll set myself down over there. I, I don't need to be close to all of that stuff going on over there. I'm, I'm fine over here on the outskirts. Are you really a part of the camp? Are you really in covenant with God? Do you want to even be in covenant with God? We should all be compelled to camp in the midst of the camp as close to God as we can be. If we love him, we want to be there. We want to see when the Lord does something. We want to be there when that pillar is there. I don't want to. I want to see that pillar in all of its glory. It's kind of like the person. I don't know if this is the best comparison. It's the guy that wants to sit in the front of the movie theater as he wants to just be engrossed by the movie. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to be there in the center of it. If you don't really care that much, you want to. You can sit on the outskirts of camp. Ah, I could take it or leave it. That's the nature of the people who sit on the outskirts of the camp. You might see the same thing in a classroom. You know, the kid that. Always sits in the back, off to the corner. Is he really paying attention to the class? Is he really listening to the teacher? Is he really, you know, a, a part of the class? Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure this is the studies have done. People that sit in the back of classrooms historically have worse grades than everybody else in the class. Because they're not participating. They're not a part of it. Such was the case with the people on the outskirts of the children of Israel. We need to remember that. And recognize that in the people that want to separate themselves. They want to be further away from the Lord. They want to be friends. They always sit in the back of the congregation. Or maybe they always sit outside the congregation. These are the people that are on the outskirts. These are the people that become the complainers. These are the people that we have to wonder and question. Are they truly a part of the covenant? I don't know. The mixed multitude complained. This was they, they also succumbed to intense cravings. Here in verse 4 of chapter 11. The children of Israel, they wept again and they said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Oh, the garlic. I miss the garlic. That's the, uh, that doesn't actually say that. That's the EAT, the Ephraim's Amplified Translation of the Bible. They were complaining about the food and the things that they ate freely in Egypt. Let me tell you something. When they were in Egypt, they were under hard bondage. There was no such thing as a free lunch when you were in Egypt. This idea of something, the things that something was free, this is the same sort of complaints and the words that come from people that think everything should be free. They think the salvation of the Lord should be free. The message of the Lord should be free. Uh, people that commit their lives to ministry and go to serve and to minister to the people that it's like, no, you're supposed to do that. And I don't have to donate my money for you to, to, to support you in any way. 
<coughs> excuse me. There is nothing free about the salvation that you have received from the Lord. The highest possible price that can be paid for anything was paid for you to have salvation. That came from the Messiah giving of his life so that you might have life. The people that commit to serving the Lord, they commit to it knowing that, look, the, 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 the means and the, and the blessing, you know, there's going to be times that are hard. It's not going to be, it's not going to be just nothing but, but prosperity and, and blessing and all these things. No, you commit to serving the Lord and there's nothing, and, and you understand it's not about anything being free because it wasn't free. And this is the nature of the people that complained about this food, about the things, and they start complaining about what they want. This is the mumblers and grumblers and complainers, and they're prevalent in all places, in all walks of life. The Lord gave them what they wanted. They complained about, uh, they also complained about the bread. This is the other thing, too. It continues on here in verse 7 of uh, chapter 11. It then describes the manna. How it was this thing that was so delicious, they gathered it up and they ground it up and they made pastries out of it and they baked it in pans and dew fell on it in the morning to protect it from, 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 from dust and debris. And it was this amazing, wonderful thing. I love the scripture here that, that actually talks up how good the manna was. And they rejected that too. So they, what they want is they want the stuff that they had to slave away and labor for that was supposedly given to them for free. And they wanted to reject the thing that actually was purely the grace of God and was amazing and delicious. What a truly wicked generation this was. God gave them what they wanted. He sent quail for them to eat. And it, the Lord sent it for them, to, for them to eat the meat, even though there were flocks at their feet that they could have killed and eaten if they wanted to. But continuing on all the way through chapter 11, it talks about how, starting in verse 31, that the Lord did send the quail. And it fluttered on the ground, and quail, sometimes they'll land on the ground in great numbers and things. And so then people went out, and they went to go, and they went to gather all this meat. And this is how bad the gluttony was of the people. is that They went to go and gather the meat, and it says the least of them, the one who gathered the least amount of meat, gathered ten homers of meat. One homer uh, actually is believed to, in the, in the unit of measurement, uh, comes out to 220 liters of volume. Ten homers, as best calculations can be uh, determined, is the equivalent of 2.2 cubic meters. That's the size of a very large refrigerator. And the person that gathered the least amount of meat gathered the equivalent of a giant deep freeze or a giant refrigerator of meat. Even in modern times with electricity and, and, and the ability to freeze food, are you ever going to be able to eat that much? A single person or even a family? If you're going to load it with that many chickens and fill that up and it's going to stay frozen? No, you're not going to be able to eat that much. There's no way. Especially in ancient times, there was no preservation of it. How is this going to be preserved? It was going to go bad in a couple of days' time. You certainly couldn't eat that much in a day. This shows the level of gluttony that the children of Israel had in this case. And the Lord judged them because of it, because it says specifically, while they were still gnashing it between their teeth, God's anger aroused and he struck them dead with a great plague. This was one of the camping places. This was a place where they stopped along the journey, and it was called Kibroth Hata'ava, which means the graves of craving. These should be start to be some warning signs for us 
in this journey, as we've come into covenant with God, we need to be careful to not fall prey and victim to our lusts. To the things that we might crave along the way or that we think that it's all like, hey, we had it so good before I was a believer. Why don't I have that? Well, you have this blessing as you're a believer. Yeah, but no, I mean, it's like, no, I want meat. I want something. uh, I want something better. This is the case and this is the pitfall of anybody. And this is how rebellions begin. When somebody is unhappy with what the Lord has given to them, even though what the Lord has given to them is some of the great is, is absolutely wonderful and amazing. What the Lord has given to them is is nothing short of, of a pure grace and blessing and blessing us with his presence. And then we reject that. This is how rebellions begin. And this is the pitfalls of even amongst the congregation and the family of faith. These are the pitfalls that can cause dissension and discord among the brethren. Speaking of discord, the last part of our Torah portion talks about a disagreement that we had between Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Moses uh, took a bride. He married a Cushite woman or an Ethiopian woman in the midst of the camp. And Miriam took a particular... uh, hesitation to that now we don't know what the motivations were some people think that this uh, might have been about race that you that he was marrying a stranger among the children of israel i don't believe it was about race i believe that would be a very short side of way way of viewing this that that miriam was was racist and didn't didn't uh, maybe even because of the color of her skin no that that's not really what this was about this was about because if she was there in the in the camp she was among the children of israel she was she was in covenant there But the question might have been that Miriam had had was about Moses staying pure and holy because he actually interacted with God. Because he has to make, because even a husband and a wife having their relationship with each other can cause a man to become unclean. And God, when he calls Moses, Moses better be on call. You know what I mean? It can't be this thing where he just had a relationship with, uh, relations with his wife. He's unclean until evening. He's got to wash his clothes. So when God calls Moses, Moses says, well, uh, sorry, I can't meet with you until evening. That's not the way this was going to go down when God called Moses. So some people think that the, maybe the motivation was for, you know, Moses to stay holy and pure. But God still was not happy with Miriam for calling this all into question. He says in verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He said to all three of them. Now, this isn't just the Lord speaking to Moses. This isn't just the Lord speaking to Aaron back when he was established as a priest. No, he's speaking to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam all at the same time. And he says, come you three to the tabernacle of meeting. He basically was like, my office right now. Because this happened in front of everybody. This happened in earshot of the congregation of Israel. This is, again, this discord among the, the, uh, among the, the, the congregation, we already just had this problem about the graves of craving. Now we have the leadership going at each other. This is something we need to get straightened out. The Lord speaks to all three of them. And he says this, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, myself, make myself known to him in a vision or speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly. And not in dark sayings. He sees the form of the Lord. And when then, and why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is to Miriam about her coming before Moses. This outlines the 
way that Moses was set apart. When it says he spoke to him face to face, literally in the Hebrew, it's pay al pene, mouth to mouth. It's basically that God, when Moses' mouth moves, it's God's mouth moving when Moses speaks. So this idea of Moses, yes, he was held to a higher standard. Yes, there was he, he was there as a leader of the congregation of Israel. But if he's going to go and, and marry a woman, then you're not supposed to have anything to say about that. The Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord knows what he's doing. Stop trying to think you know better than the Lord in what he is doing in the leading of his people. The Lord wasn't very happy with Miriam. She contracted leprosy for seven days. They had to sit, wait. She went outside of the camp for seven days. Then she was healed and came back in. Everybody in the congregation of Israel, they sat around and they're like, man, uh, why are we still here? Isn't it been seven days? Aren't we ready to move or go? Are we going to camp here any longer? Y- yeah, we're waiting for Miriam because she's been cast out of the camp for seven days with leprosy. And we're waiting for her to come back. Oh, well, what did she do? Well, she spoke against Moses. Let this be a lesson to us. <laughs> not speak against the prophet of God, to not question who God has put in authority, because God speaks through them. Not just like any prophet where people have dreams and visions and go and, 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 and prophesy to the people what the Lord has shown them. Moses was a special case, that he spoke as if God spoke. And how you treated Moses was how you treated God. It it reminds me of the parallel to Yeshua when he was teaching his disciples. And he says, uh, remember that time when you uh, when you clothed me when I was hungry and visited me while I was in prison? And they were like, no, what are you talking about? It's like, no, when you did that to the least of the people, you did it to me. That God likens this relationship, how you treat his children, his people, his prophets is how you treat him. And so then when he also said, he's like, remember that time when you didn't clothe me, when you didn't feed me when I was hungry and didn't visit me while I was in prison? And they were like, what are you talking about? And he said, if you didn't do that to the least of the brethren, you also didn't do it for me. There's a substitutionary system that God gives us for us to understand how we are to treat the Lord. That we're not to think we know better in how we treat or speak to sometimes even the leadership that is among us. We have to do what the Lord has done. He is the ultimate master. He's the one that leads us and guides us in everything that we do. We follow that pillar. We don't go and leave when we feel like it. We don't go and leave and we, 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 don't, we don't make our own trumpet and sound a trumpet and alarm other people and say, hey, it's time to go. No, we're looking and we're going to follow the trumpet that God told us to blow told us to create, and we're going to look to God's people who he has ordained and set apart from the children of Israel. They're the ones responsible for blowing that trumpet and to give us that instruction. We need to follow the Lord in all of these circumstances and situations because when you don't, and when you don't identify yourself as being in covenant with God, and you don't come to draw near to him because you love him and love the covenant, and you decide to exile yourself onto the edges, That's when bad things happen. And that happened to the children of Israel many times over. This starts and begins a series of Torah portions and teachings and instructions of the children of Israel continuing to rebel and grumble against God. And rejecting him and rejecting Moses, his prophet, and rejecting everything that God has done. 
this is when we have to pay as close attention to the scripture and the instructions for us to learn as followers and believers of God who find ourselves in our own congregations just like the children of Israel found themselves in the congregation of Israel there are as many lessons to learn from these words pitfalls that we fall into when we start to complain start to grumble start to question the leadership of the Lord start to question what the Lord is actually doing we need to be mindful of these things so let this be the first tour portion in for a couple of weeks for us to learn what not to do when it comes to the following the leading of the Lord and what not to do if you consider yourself to be in covenant with God. All right, let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for this tour portion, all of these instructions. Father, there's so much in here, Lord, and so many things for us to learn and take application to. Father, I pray that just one thing, even if just one thing ministered to the people who heard it, to take application in their lives, to walk uprightly before you, to turn their hearts back to you, to not listen to the grumblers and the complainings and the cravings and the lust that constantly fills our field of view, Father. I pray, Lord, that we would stay the course, that we would follow you, follow your leading, your instruction, your anointing, Lord, following the Messiah. May we always keep our focus on those things. May we draw near to you, closer to you, spiritually in our hearts and in our minds, Father, as we continue to tend to the tabernacle and temple that dwells inside us, and may it be a vessel fit for you, our King, and your glory to dwell in. We bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day for everything that you do in our lives. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise in this place. In Yeshua's name, amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat. 
Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 A gift from God has put a smile upon your face. He's got the whole world in His hands. Obey His commands, and you will know peace. Shalom.